0: Well, welcome again to Grace Presbyterian Church. I am Pastor Ransom Kent, and today we continue in our series on 1st and 2nd Kings. Before I read the passage that we'll study today, I want us all to put on our imagination caps. I'm not sure that's a thing, but put it on. We're going to imagine for ourselves. We're going to travel to a different time and a different place in the world uh, through our imagination. So imagine that you and me were all we are scribes of ancient Israel. And so as scribes, uh, we are set in either uh, in exile in Babylon or just after we've returned back home after being in exile in Babylon. And we've been given a job. Here's our job. Our job is to look at the record of the kings, of the kings of Israel, and look at God's law and together figure out and answer the question, what happened? Why did God rip away the kingdom from us and send us into exile? Why did that punishment occur. And so we here, we've been assigned to look at King Solomon. He was the richest of the kings of Israel. He was the king during the golden age. He had a mighty army. He had many wives. And we've been, uh, again, tasked with the idea what happened. Why was Solomon's reign considered uh, as evidence against us in this exile? And so, as we're studying a King Solomon and we, we are studying the law of God, imagine in this scroll, the law of God, you run across Deuteronomy 17. It's not, of course, labeled like that back then, but you're in Deuteronomy, you run across these verses. So I'm going to paraphrase a few things. I'm looking at Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Listen to these things. So you're thinking about King Solomon, you're thinking about how rich he was, how many wives he had, how great his army was. How did that go wrong? And you read these things. So first, this may sound familiar. Verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That should sound familiar. This is exactly what Israel said right before they elected or had God choose. King Saul for them. They said, we're tired of judges. We want a king. So it says in verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. We talked about that last week. God is the one who chooses the king, and he must be an Israelite, it says. And so listen to these, verses 16 and 17. Thinking about King Saul and all that he has and did, and then you hear these verses. It says first, rules for the king. Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. The idea is listen, you have been freed from the power of Egypt. You don't need to go back to Egypt to acquire military power, nor do you need to have a confidence in your military power. You need to have confidence in God. The passage continues, verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver. And, gold. and so it goes on to say that the king ought to simply focus on who God is, what God has done, and have his confidence be in God. And so you, you've read that, you're thinking about King Solomon, and then that is the context by, through which you write these particular verses about King Solomon. So in 1 Kings 10, the passage just before what we're going to study, you write this. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, and conservative estimates. That's 22 tons of gold a year coming in tributes and taxes. That's a billion dollars by today's value of gold. So the amount of gold that Solomon is amassing is tremendous. It's tremendous. You continue in 1 Kings 10, a few verses later, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. One uh, scholar says that there's estimates that that Solomon had up to 40,000 stalls to hold all of his horses. He had a mighty army, uh, a mighty calv- cavalry. And it says later, where did he get those horses? And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. and another place called Ku. I don't know what that is. But what has happened here? So far, gold and horses, two things that Deuteronomy 17 said, these are not the things that a king ought to be confident in. Solomon is swimming in them. And then what do we do? We arrive at First Kings 11. Allow me to read to you verses 1 through 13. This is the passage we'll be studying this morning. And note for yourself, we've got gold, we've got horses. The third law from Deuteronomy was that the king should not acquire many wives. Listen to the scholar writing kings, answering the question, what has happened Listen to his evaluation of King Solomon at the end of his life? So starting in verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses. He had 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, and his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, and was as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded. Him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray today very simply that we would learn from Solomon what you would have us learn, that we would see the importance, the the value, the essentialness of Jesus Christ in our lives. I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. So King Solomon here, he has uh, as, we've, as you're this scholar, you've looked back, he's violated the rules set by Moses, set by God for the kings. But this is not what Solomon is famous for. What is Solomon famous for? He is famously wise. Solomon the wise. He wrote Proverbs. He, he, he had wisdom. Where did that wisdom come from? You go back to 1 Kings 3, at the beginning of his, his rule, and Solomon, one of these appearances that was mentioned in the passage we just read, Solomon uh, is visited, by God, and he, God tells him, I will give you one thing. What is the one thing that you desire? I'll give you anything you want. And here's what Solomon says in 1 Kings 3.9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between, note this down, what is wisdom? That I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So Solomon famously asks for wisdom, And God famously gives him great wisdom like like has never been on earth before or will ever come after. That's what happens. Solomon the wise. And so uh, two anecdotes to kind of make uh, an example of what his wisdom brings about. One is in the scriptures just after this scenario with him asking God for wisdom. And what happens is two women come. Uh, There's two women involved and one baby. Uh, They both claim to be the mother of the child. That's biologically impossible. We understand that. And so does Solomon. And so they both are saying, this is my child. And Solomon has to figure out a way to figure out who is the mother. So he says this, here is my verdict, we will cut the baby in two and give you each half. Uh, And so the one on one side says, that sounds great, I'll take half a baby, that sounds great to me. The other one says, no, 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 if it comes to whether the baby lives or dies, please give the whole baby to the other woman. This, of course, is his way of drawing out who the true loving mother is, and so the lady who says, no, don't do it, give the baby to the other woman, instead is the one who he determines is the mother, and it is true. So he, he makes that, that call justly, and he makes that call wisely. Another anecdote, which is not in Scripture, I'm not sure when I heard this, I've heard this since I was a little boy, but uh, the best of my research, this is a, a Jewish kind of fable. But what happens is the Queen of Sheba comes, she is marveling at Solomon's wisdom, and what she does is she uh, to test his wisdom, apparently, fills an entire room, a giant room, full of flowers, bouquets of flowers. And all but one of the bouquets are fake. Ha <laughs> ha! And so she says to Solomon, find out with your wisdom, without examining them, without smelling them, without looking them up close, how can you tell in your wisdom which bouquet is real? And So Solomon, being super wise, what does he do? He opens the window to the room, and what happens? A little bee, Bzz buzz bzzz, buzz buzz buzz. <laughs> There's no one here to hear me do that. You'll hear it on Sunday. Um, a bee buzzes in. And, and what does it do? It lands on the bouquet of real flowers. I mean, wow. So wise. And so, everyone is wowed by Solomon's wisdom. It's so neat. He has a judicious mind. He can understand right and wrong, and he can, he can formulate ways to discover what is right or wrong. He, he knew a lot about right and wrong, and apparently, theoretically, about the habits of bees. He was very smart, very wise. And yet, what did Solomon suffer from? Solomon suffered from a divided heart. Hence the title of the sermon, Solomon, King Solomon, the Divided. The Divided. What is the heart? Again, we, we've mentioned this several times through uh, sermons recently, but the heart is the very center of a person. It's the very center, center of a person's being where we will and we think and we love from our heart. Our heart, okay, not just the organ or just your feelings, it's everything about you. And Solomon, even though he knew everything about right and wrong, even though he knew exactly and deeply about things that were right and things that were evil, his heart was divided. And so as we, we tend to look at Solomon as a hero, one of these Old Testament heroes we talked about last week, we tend to look at him as uh, supremely wise and, oh man, if I could just be like Sol- Solomon. Solomon. Um, uh, and I want, to be, I want us to be cautious about making him a hero. Remember last week I said the thing that we should look to emulate is their faith and their repentance. And so the, the sermon today, we're going to look at this passage in 1 Kings 11, and we are going to ask two questions. What can we learn from Solomon from it? What can we learn from Solomon? But also I want us to answer the question, how does this account draw us to Jesus Christ? So let's take a look at Solomon. What can we learn from Solomon First, the first thing we can learn from Solomon is that wisdom does not equal holiness. Wisdom does not equal holiness. Look at verse 4. Excuse me, verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. What was it that Saul had more than any human on earth? Wisdom. And if you recall from 1 Kings 3, what is wisdom? It says here, uh, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between what? Good and evil. And what does Solomon commit in verse 6? What does he declared to have committed in verse 6? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, Solomon knew right and wrong. Solomon knew what was right. He knew what was evil. And yet, in his heart, he committed sin. He did evil. I believe... We as Reformed Christians can be a case study for this, okay? We can and have the potential to have so much knowledge. And yet, what are we day in and day out? Sinners. We sin. Even though we know great amounts of theology and the Bible, we sin. And so we can understand from Solomon that wisdom, the knowledge of what is right, and the knowledge of what is evil, does not beget holiness. What does? What what begets what brings about obedience? Love does. Love brings about obedience. If you look at verses 2 and 3 and 4 of this passage, you'll see what Solomon loved, and you'll see where his obedience w- uh, was. So from verse 2, he had married many foreign women, even though God had said not to. And what's the last phrase? Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, says in verse 3. 300 concubines. And what did they do? His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. This word heart appears five times in three verses. That's what this whole situation is concerned with. Where was Solomon's heart? Where was his love? It was with his wives, and therefore he obeyed his wives. Which brings us to the second thing we can learn from Solomon. So wisdom does not equal holiness. We can also see that sin is often creeping and slow in its approach. So Solomon, this is scary a little bit. Solomon, in in 1 Kings 3, just before it says this part about him asking for wisdom about about good and evil, what does it say? It says in 1 Kings 3, 3, Solomon loved the Lord. It's comparing him to David, saying he, he loved God wholeheartedly at the beginning of his rule. And yet, Solomon's disobedience, what happened when he was old, his wives turned away his heart. It was slow and creeping. Dale Ralph Davis, some of you may recognize that name. He was at First Presbyterian for a while. He says this about this very situation. The infidelity, this infidelity to God is also subtle because it's gradual. It was not some sudden attack or an irresistible assault that explains Solomon's plunge into pagan worship. No, it took years. The result of of the creeping pace of accumulated compromises and the fruit of a conscience desensitized, by repeated permissiveness. Sin does not come all at once or suddenly. It's not like a trap, a hole in the ground you fall into. No, it is a slow and creeping process that takes over our hearts. The third thing we can learn, and this is a, a good thing, sin does not mess up God's plan. Look at verse 13. However, it says, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. Why? Why? Because his son's great? No, we're going to learn about Rehoboam later. Because Solomon didn't do something wrong, we know that's not true. So why is, is God keeping the kingdom of David intact? For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem whom that I have chosen. God's choice, God's promise, His covenant stands despite Solomon's sin. And so because God is faithful and His plan does not fail, His plan was not thwarted by Solomon's egregious sin of worshiping Other gods. And so, as we think about ourselves in this light, we may think, phew, okay, good news, my sin will not mess up God's plan. But I don't want us to relax in that thought for long because while sin does not mess up God's plan, it certainly will complicate, if not mess up or destroy, our situation, our lives. That's the fourth thing we can learn from Solomon is that sin most certainly messes up our earthly circumstances. Look at verses 9. Through twelve In 9 and 10, we get a listing of his sin. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because, why? His heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. God was real to him. And, he, and as he had commanded him concerning this thing, they should not go after other gods, but he did not keep the Lord's commands. He worshiped other gods. And what is the punishment? What's the consequence? Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, verse 11, Since this has been your practice, You have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. You see the consequences set in motion by Solomon's sin are devastating. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. Uh, One author says that the consequences were thorough, prophetic, and based on God's word. God did what he said he would do. They were uh, the consequences were immediately visited upon the people of God. This this rending of the kingdom has not happened peacefully. It's violent. It's a, it's a catastrophe. And so, the de, it derailed this prosperous time for God's people. And so, sin destroyed the golden age of Israel. Solomon's sin. As we think about these things, we've learned. So we've learned that. First of all, wisdom does not equal holiness. We've learned that sin is, is oftentimes, if not always, creeping and slow in its approach. We learned that sin does not mess up God's plan, but it certainly will mess up our short-term lives. We will see the consequences of our sin. They'll be visited on those around us. And as we think about these things we've learned, we can say that this is a quintessential, this is an epitome uh, of a cautionary tale of a divided heart. Solomon is... is a cautionary tale of a divided heart. And so, well, what does it have to do with us? Well, let's make no mistake. Our hearts are divided. We love to fill our life with, with distractions, with, with relationships and possessions and our reputation or our status or our power and our influence. And so, the concept that we have to make connection here with is this. We can be a learned man or woman of God. We can know an immense amount of things about God and yet have no love for our Lord. That's, that's Solomon's situation. This, that situation can be our situation. See, we can memorize Scripture. We can memorize Scripture. We can know theology. We can follow the letter of the law but still be an absolute, unrepentant sinner. Holiness, goodness, righteousness, these things are not simply about what you know. Holiness isn't wisdom. They're not the same thing. What is holiness about? Where does obedience come from? It comes from who or what we serve. I was drawn to the the verse from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm studying it personally right now. We're going to be uh, doing our sermon series in the fall on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm excited for that, and I'm preparing now. But uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so this is Solomon's situation. This is our situation. Solomon at one point loved God primarily. The Lord was his master. And then over time, through these uh, um, creeping, uh, um, what was the word, compromises, through, through these kind of allowances of, uh, of uh, and, and not taking God seriously, not pursuing God and, and loving Him more, on a regular basis, what happened? He, he wandered from God. He ended up in a place where he, he did not worship God primarily any longer. He served a different master. And so as we, we boil this down, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this this morning. If we are not actively pursuing our God, the lo- our love of God, if we're not actively pursuing loving God more, we, then we are actively pursuing our love of something else. <laughs> we're never in neutral. We're never just floating. Either we're pursuing God and loving Him more and knowing Him more and following Him more or we're pursuing something else. We have a magnetism. Our heart is magnetized and is drawn to either this love or that love. You and I, are, we're familiar with these situations. You know, I, I run across it a lot in biblical counseling or pastoral counseling, um, and, and we run it into our own lives, and our friends' lives. A large issue, think of it this way, a large issue comes up. A sinful thing, a, a hard circumstance. Um, and if we really are honest about that circumstance, this maybe it's a problem in our marriage or something, if we look at it, it, either from the person that we're experiencing with or in our lives, from a biblical perspective, what has happened? We have abandoned our first love. Somewhere along the line, one person or another has stopped serving God, stopped pursuing God, and started pursuing something else. And, and the culmination of that pursuit is this thing like Solomon. It's slow, creeping thing. It's not sudden. It, it, it's this culmination of a bigger issue. And so what we would like to have in those scenarios is a simple solution. Come on, help me fix it. That's generally what, what, what I'm asked as people come to me for pastoral counseling. Hey, help me fix this. And... and, and Generally, there is no easy solution to our big problems. We'd love to have one. There is no easy solution. And generally, the solution is this. We must, in the moment, reorient ourselves back toward pursuing our love of God. It's not about doing this or that and then having it be fixed suddenly. It's about that that slow, creeping path we took to get there. We've got to turn around and go back down that slow, creeping path, reorienting ourselves back toward God. And so the sin has been creeping, and at this moment, in that time, when that big issue reveals its ugly head, what is, our, what is the answer to that problem? From a, a spiritual perspective, the answer is it's time to turn back towards the Lord to change our trajectory. And so if there was a piece of advice, if there was an instruction that I could give each and every one of us, from this passage, what we're learning here, it's this. Uh, and I hope you write this down. I hope you take this seriously. We, all of us, myself included, you, me, we must constantly calibrate our affections. We must. and We have to constantly assess where we are. Where are we pointed? Are we pursuing God, or pursuing something else? That has to be a regular calibration. Because our infidelity against God is is rarely sudden crashing thing. It's always, almost always a subtle creeping thing. We have to consistently draw our affections back to Christ. We have to evaluate what we're looking at, what we're loving, and then reorient ourselves back towards Jesus Christ, back towards God. How do we do that? You've heard me say this at least a dozen times. It's the, the, the cycle of discipleship. Learn, affirm, obey, or learn, affirm, trust. We must learn more about God through His Word. We must affirm those things as true and then live in obedience as if God is trustworthy. Learn, affirm, trust. If you look at Solomon's life, and you look at this issue that Solomon had, and you take this learn, affirm, trust kind of cycle, and you look how he applied that to his wives, I think it makes sense on how he ended up where he was. Think about this. So he learned from his wives what they liked. They liked their foreign gods. He learned that about them. And he affirmed that in them. One scholar said in, in building them their high places, he literally promoted their damned worship. Their worship, that was meaningless. He knew that. He's the one that built the temple of God, making all the high places the Israelites used obsolete. And yet, what did he do when his wives said, I want my foreign gods? He, he affirmed that in them. And then what did he do? He did what was pleasing in their sight. He lived as if, Their way of living was true. He trusted in their gods rather than the God of Israel, the God who took them out of Egypt. So little by little, compromise by compromise, micro-decision by micro-decision, what happened to Solomon? Solomon walked slowly away from God. And what was the result? He found himself, at the end of his life, drifted very far from his Lord. And in that place, he violated the first commandment. He abandoned his first love. He worshipped false gods. It says... In verse 5, for Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcombe, the abomination of the Ammonites. He himself, Solomon, was up there in the high places sacrificing and worshiping to false gods. It's the same for us. It's the same for us. It may not be as apparent as going to the high places and worshiping other gods, but we are constantly drifting. Sin in our life, our affections, are a slow, creeping And so the question then would be, well, where are our hearts drifting? Where are we we pursuing in love when we're not pursuing God in love? And I'm going to use uh, the the same uh, categories that King Saul dealt with, possessions, uh, power and success, relationships, to kind of give us a paradigm to evaluate in our lives. But another way to ask this question would be, If we took a look at our affections today, and we didn't change them, what would be the fruit of those affections in 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? If sin is flowing creeping, if we took the affections that we hold on to right now, and we don't reorient them back to Christ, where will we end up? So let's take a look at money and possessions. So maybe, money and possessions, maybe you're obsessed with that next best thing. Now, we didn't have a children's sermon today, but I think it's a great opportunity to talk to children. Children, are you bored with your toys? (laughs) Do you find that you just want more, more, more of something, that you you want newer, newer, newer? I want to tell you that in your heart, that's your heart grabbing out to, to love things that aren't God. It's looking for satisfaction in the things that you have, your stuff. And I use that example because your parents are listening And they're probably thinking, yeah, Johnny, that's right, you do that. And I want to say to parents, we do the exact same thing. We're exactly the same. We want newer, better, more. That's our affections, reaching out for possessions. Where will that lead us in 5, 10, 25 years? If we don't reorient back towards Christ. Let's think about power, reputation, success. Listen, does work come before family? Does work come before family? If you continue on that path, putting your job before your family, what will be the payout of that in 5, 10, 15 years? Maybe you spend gobs of time fine-tuning how you look on social media. You want people to think well of you in that that place. You want people to think you have an exciting, amazing life. You want to hide your blemishes in that way. What will be the payout for that? What will be the fruit of that? Will you be closer and more in love with God? Now, in relationships, I'm going to talk about marriage. I want to, for a moment, just mention that the advice I'm about to give is relevant for 90% of marriages. There's that 10% of marriages that are in extreme situation. Maybe that's abuse. Maybe that's another thing. But I don't want you to hear this advice as cookie-cutter advice. This is generic marital advice. And if you find yourself in one of those extreme situations, please have courage and talk to someone you trust get help. Uh, your elders, myself, maybe your, your life group leader, someone uh, wants to help. And so please be open about that. But in generic, general, relational advice for marriages, husbands and wives, listen, we can lose our way trying to please our spouses. We can lose our way with the Lord and our love of the Lord by trying to please our spouses The whole ideology, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Or either way, if papa ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This is a sinful problem that plagues a good amount of marriages. The idea that if we just make our spouses happy, everything will be okay. If we could just make them happy, our marriage will be good. You see, this was Solomon's issue. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy was his issue. He clung to his wives in love, it says. And so it In a sense, what he's saying, if my wife wants a high place for Shumash, the abomination of Moab, she gets it. That's what mama gets. If she wants it, she gets it. And his his pursuit of pleasing his wives or pleasing God led him to a place where he was distant from the Lord. He no longer served him. Now, what does this not mean? This doesn't mean you should purposefully displease your spouse. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, The point is, what is our focus of our efforts? Are we looking to God and loving God and out of that overflow, having a a kind heart and and, and good um, uh, uh, motives, good outpouring for the relationships around us? Or are we focusing our efforts on our spouse, serving our spouse as if they are the one we ought to please? You see, Christian, we can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. In fact, to make it more specific, we can only be satisfied when we serve Jesus Christ alone. If we try to serve other things, we we are off trajectory. We are not tracking towards God. We're tracking towards the love and affection of other things, which will visit upon us this sinful drifting. And So what ought to be the trajectory of our lives? In the moment, what can calibrate us? right here, right now. What is the answer for what ought to be the focus of my life? The focus of our life ought to be to know and to love our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we should calibrate up and against. Am I doing that or am I knowing and loving something else? Which brings us to the second question that we asked at the beginning. How does this account draw us to Jesus Christ? How does this account of Solomon loving foreign women as God told the Israelites not to do and and giving them their high places and then allowing them to turn his heart away from God and then eventually violating God's command to not have any other gods before him and worshiping false gods. How does this draw us to Jesus Christ? Let me draw two comparisons. First of all, Jesus is the perfectly undivided king. You see, Jesus had no horses. He had no wives. He had no gold. He is the king that that only had God the Father, and he's perfectly content. Jesus didn't need these other things. He was confident in who God was. Jesus didn't even have a palace. And yet, as he sits on the throne of David, he is our perfect king. And I want to understand this. Did Jesus love those around him? Was he neglectful of his relationships? No, he loved everyone around him very well. He was truthful and kind, and he healed, and he he brought wisdom. And what did that come from? It came from his overflow of his relationship with God, the Father. Jesus is the epitome. He's the example of an undivided heart, wholly trusting in God, having everything that he could ever need. The second thing I want you to see in comparison to King Saul, Jesus will not squander the kingdom that he has. Jesus sits on the throne of David. He is the perfect promised king that will hold on to that throne, that kingdom, forever. And it is secure in his hands. There's no uncertainty for you and for me. Will Jesus pass and who will take over? No, Jesus is a king forever. There will be no shift in power. And so whatever transpires, whatever happens in our lives whether it's a worldwide sickness or an unfortunate outcome of a presidential election or persecution or whatever it may come, what can we sit on? What can we stand on? What is the firm promise for us? It is this. Jesus, our King, reigns forever. Jesus reigns forever. It will not end. He will not squander it. And it's this steady Faithfulness and this eternal rule of Jesus Christ that to fuel what? Our desire to know Him and love Him more and more and more. And so, starting today, here, here's the encouragement of this whole sermon. Starting today, church, let us take part in that regular calibration of our affections. Let us, on a regular basis, daily basis, stop and ask, What am I caring about? What am I pursuing? in love. Because remember, if we are not actively pursuing our God in love, we are actively pursuing something else. Now for those of you that don't know Jesus in this way, as a faithful ruler, as a faithful king, I want to encourage you to consider the things you've heard today. And So allow me to be doom and gloom for a second. I want to tell you there is no hope in possession or relationships or reputation. Uh, There's no thing that Uh, you can do. And to make it worse, no human ruler can enter your life and change that formula so that it will work. It doesn't work that way. There's there's no one who can deliver you from the predicament that you find yourself in other than the perfect king, Jesus. Jesus is secure on his throne. Jesus will not squander his rule. Jesus will not sinfully stray from what is best. and, And that king is the one whom we can have faith in to be saved. So when you put your faith, you believe in King Jesus, what He's done for you, and you submit your life to Him as your eternal ruler, you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am thankful that many, many centuries ago a scholar sat down and asked the question, what went wrong? What went wrong? He saw that Solomon, as good of a king by human standards as he was, he had so many horses, he had so many wives, so many political alliances that those wives represented. He had so, many, so much gold, so much silver, so many riches, so much. Uh, people were impressed with him and his, his wisdom. And a scholar sat down and, and dared to ask, What went wrong there? And we see. A great wise man can turn his heart away from God and, and fall distant from our Lord. And if Solomon can do that, so can we. I pray this morning for our divided hearts. I pray for my divided heart. I pray, Lord, that You would help me each day to have the courage to, to reassess, to, to ask and, and to um, calibrate my affections. I pray that you'd give me the courage and the wisdom and the insight and the... Uh, that was my water bottle. There it goes. I pray that you'd give me those things to, to ask those hard questions and face those hard answers. I choose other things. I, I pursue other things in love. And I pray, Lord, that for myself and for my church and for those listening that know you and love you, that each day we would take time to recalibrate our trajectory to know and to love our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We love you dearly, and I pray that that, that declaration is true, and I pray that tomorrow it's more true than it was today. And we pray in your name, knowing that God approaches us and answers us and hears us only in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.